welcome to machine learning. Okay, I want to talk about flat hierarchies and why they're important in an organization. Flat hierarchies remove bureaucracies inside corporations, and bureaucracies are expensive. Bureaucracies are put there uh, to create simple hierarchy structures where authorization is required for different steps of the process. The idea is that you have an overseeing or governing uh, body that ensures that policies are proceeding according to company objectives or organizational objectives. And so it's viewed as a safety mechanism. But the trade-off is that organizations become less fluid. So with a flat hierarchy, you have more fluidity because systems are designed for action and um, organizations can take action quicker in uh, small specialized groups or teams. And that's really important in a uh, complex organization. So it, it creates for a level of adaption. And I, I've talked a long time ago about uh, complex, the complexity advantage, and you might want to go back and listen to that podcast on the complexity advantage. But in that statement, organizations are viewed as uh, groups or teams, and the lifeblood of that organization is the energy. Well, energy means that they can make decisions and they have access to resources and they can begin to uh, take actions based on those, on those uh, requirements and needs. And those, that, that creates for um, a powerful ability inside of an organization. Well, now one of the key factors of flat hierarchies has, was Shackleton's method of management. And he had a, a he was real close to the men he worked with and he provided comfort and he always had a little bit of resource to provide them and he allowed for them to have a good quality of life, go on long walks, and played games, and there was a certain level of sociality. And those men were able to survive incredible hardships. I think they were on that Elephant Island for two years. Well, maybe the first great example of, of flat hierarchies was Alexander the Great. <clears throat> Even though it may seem strange, his actions may seem strange when he attempted to walk across the desert with his men. Um, he inspired a lot of bravery, and was it, it It was very dangerous for him to have done that because he could have died of uh, thirst walking across that desert. But in the process of doing that, he inspired his men that he was a hero. And so we see this hero leader um, emerge in in flat hierarchies where they're viewed not as an impersonal leader, but they're viewed as a, a leader who they can they can talk to um, and they're willing to support. 
and that's really critical in an organization that you have people that are willing to support you and help your success. And um, I'm trying to think of some modern-day heroes that uh, I'd love to work for that would help them be successful, rather than just pull a paycheck. And that, that's kind of one of those things that you have to uh, be inspired by. I don't think you can force yourself to say, I want to support this guy. Uh, you have to be inspired by their views, their goals, what they're going to provide back for you, your future, and uh, what was, what's the unifying purpose of what you're doing. And so if you believe in the things that you're doing, uh, you you may support it. Like I was listening to Nicola, and I really find that case study interesting. Its stock has been severely dis- depressed for probably two years or so, but yet it seems to be that the people who are building the technology believe that they're changing the world. So they have fuel cells that can run in extreme cold, and they've added uh, very advanced tra- tracking systems. So, like, if it uh, begins to skid on ice, that it, the wheels will spin at different rates, and uh, you don't have a spin-out. And it's just really good for handling. Uh, it didn't add the automation that I would have thought would have come with self-driving semis, but the experiences focus on the engine, on the technology, on the reliability, on the pull power, on the range. On the, the first round of semis that are coming offline, I think they're planning to have like 500 this year, will be electric. And maybe that's just due to the fact that electric is so popular. But the electric semi does not have the range. So to my mind, that was a mistake. The technology to build the fuel cell semi was definitely there. And they should have moved to fuel cell immediately and positioned themselves out front in the lead on that race. And then worked with strategic partnerships with GM to scale the fuel cell semi um, into mass production where they're not just producing 500, but maybe they're producing a million semis a year. And if you could reach that level, um, it would be such a game changer because there would be a huge switch from uh, diesel-powered semi to fuel cell semi. And that and that primary reason, and I've pointed this out in the past, is because of range and also the availability of uh, hydrogen, mobile hydrogen stations that can be put in key locations to provide the hydrogen refueling, like air, liquid air, and they, and they specialize not only in the stationary fuels uh, hydrogen production, but they also have mobile uh, units that can be put on site. 
So that would have created a huge surge for them, and um, there would have been, you could set up different uh, routes and identify those key routes and put the, the mobile units in place there for the semis to fill, refill. What's amazing about the fuel cell semi is that it only produces water as a byproduct. So when you're watching the Nicola demonstrations, you're seeing a lot of steam coming off of the semis, and it's just water. It's water steam. So it's very healthy for the environment, and uh, as a result, you know, I think we'll, as the world moves towards this uh, unlimited energy scenario where we're not, uh, we're constrained by shortages, then, you know, the war machinery, every time there's lots of war in the world, there's always the energy scarcity. I don't know why that is, but there, there must be a connection to the uh, military-industrial complex where the Middle East becomes important for oil resources. But, the, you know, the United States has the oil, so it's not a factor in terms of dependency on the Middle East for our oil. So I don't understand why we're not increasing our exports of oil. But it has, it, like I said, it has to do probably with some sort of military-industrial complex that prevents the free-flowing of oil on the, the free market and uh, creates a scarcity by regulating and by subsidizing Middle Eastern countries, Arab countries. And so the Arab countries during war do very well in terms of profits. And uh, that may help politically, geopolitically advance certain key objectives. So there's always a strategy behind it. Well, the introduction of hydrogen would eliminate uh, the dependency on those key resources, and you could uh, take a, and reform hydrogen either from seawater and use uh, photovoltaic or, or energy from the waves to produce your hydrogen. Uh, you could also put a nuclear power plant close to the ocean and like at the Fukushima, but make it a pebble reactor so it can't have a meltdown and produce hydrogen and algae and grow fish for food. So there's there, there could be multiple byproducts of the energy production, hydrogen, algae for fish, and then food for consumption, fish for consumption. So it could be very uh, very cost effective to incorporate nuclear energy at that level. At the same time, you could also provide desalinization. So you could have run desalinization, uh, reverse osmosis, clean, cleaning of the water, and maybe even some ozone, and get the water to a state where it could be consumed either for agriculture or for um, 
food consumption. And robotics are playing a big role in food production because the robots can now, in mass, plant the seedlings, harvest them, water them, and they don't necessarily need to be in water. They can be floating on or on land. They can be floating on water. And so you can have these huge farms that are floating. Uh, they have vegetables that are growing that are floating on water, hydroponics. And um, most of the process can be automated. So this cycle is exciting because it, it uh it can utilize a lot of the resources around it and you can try work to make the energy production such that it will create these healthy byproducts so n not everything in the world has to be bad it can it can be good and so as if you're thinking about engineering and building uh, new systems, think about not just the immediate problem, but overall think more of a systematic way of solving multiple problems together, a synergistic approach, a combinatorial approach to solving a problem that you're bringing multiple combinations together um, inside of a system and using automation to create a profit zone. Okay, so that's my take on flat hierarchies, um, is that I think that flat hierarchies are more fluid. The more complex your organization, the, the more fluid you need to be. So complex systems are, are complex because they are adaptive. And so you can adapt that complexity to meet the needs of your organization. And increasing the complexity is good because it uh, allows for more possible ways to uh, meet the needs of your the end users. And so that you're looking at cloud, and cloud is pretty complex. It's very complex. I don't understand cloud because I've never worked in cloud, but it adds many different services. And you look at, like, who has the most services, Amazon or uh, Azure Cloud? And Azure Cloud is really accelerating its growth, I think mainly because of its tool set. Uh, the, the huge success of Visual Studio, the huge success of Azure, um, the usage of SQL Server, and lately, Cosmo DB. I, I think more companies are starting to like the value of NoSQL or even DB. And I know I'm thinking about uh, using some of these technologies to create more adaptive ways of meeting customer needs. Well, one one of the areas that I I particularly like is Flutter, and I've been spending a lot of time 
learning the different technologies and the class structures of Flutter. And you really can do quite a bit with it. Uh, so one of the things I liked about it this week is I was having a kind of a problem with my change notifier provider in that it didn't seem like the change notifier provider was getting called fast enough by the uh, provider listener, context listener, and it was, and I was so I was changing the value, but I was noticing that uh, that my counter was jumping. It wasn't it wasn't a smooth incrementing value, so I had a timer connected to it in my class that I extended from Change Notify. And what see what Change Notify does is that's your model, and so the model. Um, you can interact with the model and you can then change values in the model and then you say notify listeners and listeners can be uh, a provider or it can also be a provider that's connected to that uh, model class or it can be a consumer so you can set up a consumer widget and then it, it has a context, and it's going to receive the model from the uh, from the listen notifier. So the provider, the overall provider, is going to send that along the stream, and that consumer then picks it up off the stream because it's listening for that model. And so you can see the the real value of that is that you can have these complex hierarchies. And in the hierarchies, you can have these consumer objects that are intercepting the data stream and that then allow to communicate asynchronously on the stream uh, back to the model. So you can have methods in the model, you can have attributes in the model, and, and there's a lot of functionality uh, that you can utilize in the model. So what I did in that example is I had it uh, uh, calculate a hexadecimal value, which I converted into an integer for a color, and then I changed the background color of the scaffolding at bar. And so it was it's cycling through like 10 iterations and it's changing the color of the scaffolding background 10 times. And that was all done with strings. And so you can you can have uh, you can have multiple consumers and they can be listening to different providers and but those providers uh only could have one stream per provider. So I haven't tried the multiple provider scenario yet, but Flutter does allow for a uh, array or a list of providers that have various streams on it. So you could have a model provider, you could have a web API provider, you could have um, a file management provider. And these providers then 
are somewhat like services in the uh, in the Microsoft ASP.NET world. And so using that model, you could then uh, build those services and be and consume those services. So that provides for a really rich experience for the user. You can have multiple things that are going on at the same time and not uh, blocking at the user interface thread. And that, that has always been a super challenge in writing code is keeping everything uh, asynchronous and not blocking that uh, user main user thread. And so the way Microsoft did it before is they had created uh, worker worker uh, processes that were spawned off separate from the UI thread. And so the UI thread was not blocked. But inside Flutter, what you're doing is they've moved now to the concept of streams, and streams then allow you for the non-blockage of the UI thread. Well, another another example that I did uh, was dealing with the bottom navigate bar. And the bottom na that navigate bar is actually quite simple. It's a component, it's an attribute off of scaffold, scaffolding. And it, uh, you have it as a parent widget and then as a, the items then you have a list of uh, bottom navigator bar items and then you can utilize those list of items to uh, with icons <coughs> to create buttons at the bottom and so what I what they wanted to do from the stack overflow problem was to create a rounded corners on the bottom navigator. So the way you do that is you set up a container and then the box decorator uh, for the box decoration, and then you set the, the box decoration with rounded corners. And then as a child, then you would do uh, this box, the bot bottom bar navigator, and it will um, then have its bottom bar items. And the key was to clip the rectangular area that represented the, the bottom bar, bar so that you didn't pick up any of the background image. So I, I created a background image. And the way I did the background image is you um, – you set up a container, and the container, you set the width equal to double infinite and the height to double infinite, so it builds the, the full dimension. You could use a query media and get the size that way, or you can just make it an infinite dimension, which that's what I did. And then I uh, loaded my image asset in my example and then displayed displayed it 
and then just output some text. So you can see with Flutter, there you, you're starting to you kind of have to start to think of like widget component technology and streaming, and and you don't really worry about when things arrive. You just um, you just wait for when things arrive, and then you process it when they do arrive. So there's this kind of technology that's done that way, and that and that makes it for uh, fairly complex code, but at the same time, you get a really nice user experience because of the behavior of the code. And so, uh, it almost looks like if you have studied uh, Signal R, it almost acts like Signal R. And I kind of wonder if, in some ways, they utilize some of that technology of streaming that was embedded in Signal R and they and, and then they incorporated that into the components that were kind of universal across all the devices. So you have iOS streaming, you have uh, you have uh, um, Android streaming, you have Windows streaming. So it has to work across four platforms and then you have Chrome Web. So you have Chrome Web, you have Windows you have iOS, and then you have Android. Google's ambitions are very, uh, very big, and they they seem to cover a lot of territory with one cross-platform tool. And so that's kind of what uh, I'm thinking is important: is these cross-platform tools for building and that's why I've invested my time into it and trying to position myself as a, a flutter expert. So it take a it'll take me about probably about a year to master the flutter. I've I've actually started been working in flutter for quite a while for a couple of years and it's just now I'm starting to uh, take the the reference manual and start working through the reference manual and understanding all of its capabilities. And I do have Flutter's book for recipes, Flutter recipes. They're pretty good. Um, and it kind of explains some of the functionality and how to combine some of the functionality. And it gives kind of a list of the rules. And I, and I do like that, that it gives the rules for the widgets. And it's a good reference book, real quick, and I've used it also. But the complete reference is my favorite because he was a uh, very thorough in his analysis of the Flutter language. And uh, and so I'm looking at different um, scenarios that I could use to use the widgets to build. And I think that the AI is going to come in really quick. Um, and you can just go to, and let's say like Instagram or Twitter or, or Twitter or any of these social media applications and um, have it reverse engineer the widget design required to create that interface and then wire up that interface. And so you can have these really complex interactive mobile apps the AI could build for you, and then you 
create the data connections, the web APIs, the graph, Q, the graph QLs, and um, interact with the data stores. And then, so those are some of the high-level approaches I think that will be taken in the future, just to accelerate and understand some of the complexity. And AI is going to take a be a, a real important role in that as it. Um, can learn from more examples than than I can, and it can then cover a wider space quicker. And so, this natural language processing to code is something that is going to be utilized more and more. And it may be just utilized to do the templating, to just create the basic template, and you you <clears throat> you look at it. That was why. Uh, Microsoft NBC worked is that you know you had these various templates and when you wanted to create you know a data form you access these templates and they had all the CRUD operations in it and it had the HTML helpers and so it you know it generated this code for you and then you came in and, and set up your your styling and <clears throat> custom look and feel. Well, with widgets, you don't necessarily have to do that. With widgets, they already have a uh, standardized look and feel, and you modify the theme. Uh, you can add child widgets like images or sound clips or video, um, and these components then will work as children of other bigger components, like you have a column component, and underneath columns you can have row components, and under the row components you can have widgets that are box fits, or uh, you could have size boxes, or you could have flex box. There's a lot of different components that you can put in there that will work with these parent widgets. And so, um, uh, it creates for a lot of complexity, but at the same time, as we've talked about, with that complexity, you can solve a lot of problems. And, you know, Google's pretty good about releasing out widgets, because I was looking at one for a game that I'm, I'm thinking about and I'm designing out, and uh, it has, and I was looking at the slider switch bar, and or switch slider bar, or let's see what was it called, switch list tile, I think it's called. And uh, it already had the switch in it on the list bar, so it had a title and it had the switch component. And so you just wire up that to a variable, and so it saves some time because. And then it would allow which side the switch was on, on the leading side or on the trailing side. And then you could add an icon and you could add a title. And so it, you know, it, it would then fit inside of a list builder, list view builder. And you could use um, streaming to populate that data. So you can have a provider that makes the web API call over to the server, 
and then returns back the data, and then the stream uh, receives the notification that there's new data on the sync controller, and then the uh, components that are listening to that, the stream builders that are listening to that stream, then will cause its builder to run, and the builder then will generate pass the data to each one of the uh, tiles that is generating based on an index. So it's index-based builder using the builder object-oriented model. And I like that kind of builder approach to design because that model is a pretty powerful one um, because it, it it all it does is build widgets and it's just listening on the stream for something to change and that's for, when you use streams that's pretty much how that's pretty much the way streams work is the stream when it gets new data it um, it requires requests that the widget be built again. Now, with change notifier on the stream, the way it works is a little bit more elegant, is it doesn't necessarily rebuild the widget, but it changes the widget's attribute. So, like, for example, I could have a provider and I've got an attribute, let's say it was the color, and I have as an attribute on my uh, my app bar the background and so when that when that color changes it'll automatically change that attribute and and uh, cause the flutter to render out that that uh, color change so in some ways it's kind of like event event programming that we're really familiar with with uh, Microsoft technology and so my, my recommendation is, is if you're, you know, kind of scared of Flutter, uh, you know, I wouldn't be scared of it. Download your Visual Studio code from uh, Microsoft. It's a free download. Download your uh, Flutter. It's a free download from Google. And then uh, start to incorporate different Flutter libraries and start learning it. And I just create a small – I just do uh, Flutter – at the at the terminal inside Visual Studio Code, I just do Flutter create and a and my project, and I say, well, you know, test bot uh, bottom bar navigation, and then I just focus on that that particular component, and then I do a YouTube on it so that uh, I can explain what I did, and those are that's just kind of the approach that I'm taking with Flutter and. You know, I've got 250 subscribers, and I'm working, you know, for a thousand. And uh, so I'm working on building up my content. And I think once I get the Flutter, once I get kind of feeling good with Flutter, I'm going to uh, start building up content on uh, PowerShell. It seems like there's some interest in PowerShell, and uh, maybe do some uh, YouTube's on that. But the world is uh, becoming digital, and so you have to begin to think of how to, 
to do programming. And your programming is going to be far more than just sequential programming. A lot of it's now object-oriented programming. And so you need to understand how the different object-oriented patterns were implemented in these modern frameworks and then become comfortable in consuming those modern frameworks to solve problems. So that's my advice to you is, uh, is to uh, uh, get into Visual Studio Code and start, uh, start building simple sample codes and, uh, and, and start building. Do 100 days of coding and do 100 different samples and that will build your confidence. And as you build your confidence, then uh, you, your, your capabilities will expand. And, uh, you know, maybe provide a, a website or, or put the, your applications that you're building on the App Store so that um, it has some usability. Because, you know, just like some of the little games that I've built, I like them because they they uh, they challenge my mind. I mean, they're simple at first, but they they also can get really complex, uh, difficult. So especially when you're trying to calculate uh, 25 times 25, or you know what four numbers added together will equal 25. Um, I call that game I'm building count by fives. So count by, and then maybe uh, count equal five or multiple five. I, I haven't really quite thought of how to did that. It's not really you're not really counting by five, but the the end number is a multiple of five. Five, ten, fifteen, twenty, twenty-five, thirty. 35. So how do you get four numbers from a set of numbers uniquely to total 35? And so you have 16, 14, 10, 8, 6, 4, 2, and 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. Those are all your numbers you have. Take any four numbers make and unique and total that to 35. It's, so it's pretty easy. I mean, you take your big numbers first, add them together, and then see what other numbers remain, and you have to get the right combination so that it totals out to be four, four numbers in combination equaling 35. And see, so it's kind of a good game. It, it works your mind. It's fun. Um, get a score and you know it's not a competition so I don't have you you know racing against someone else you just get a score you just you know something to pass the time with because I know that a lot of people enjoy counting and we've done that as human beings since our birth as we learn to count things like our money like the things that we need and those are are uh, valuable to us to be able to do 
Well, it's uh, a lot of fun. Computers are fun, but they also are work, and they're used in work to do uh, different things that are important to companies. And so as you can do that work that's important for companies, your value increases. And so I, what I'm finding is that a lot of the programming, programming solutions that I solved on Stack Overflow in Python, I could easily solve the same thing in Flutter, in Dart. And I could also solve the same thing in PowerShell. And so I'm beginning to look at um, these languages and, and uh, looking for equivalence between the languages. And the same thing is true of C-sharp. Can I do the same thing um, that I do in Flutter, in Dart, in PowerShell, in uh, C-sharp? And one thing I like about C-sharp is it's a compiled language where Dart, Python, PowerShell are not uh, their interpretive languages. But I like working in that interpretive language because I don't have to wait for the compiles. And so it makes it nice for uh, development speed, but at the same time it's not as robust and as the C-sharp for handling error, and I like I like the C sharp for production because uh, confidence on the on the output.